You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. There's three things that set designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the world. Facebook Design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, I've mentioned this in a few episodes before, but before I started Revision Path, I had my own studio called Lunch, and I ran that for a little bit over nine years. And during that time, I've been fortunate to not only be a MailChimp expert, but later on become a MailChimp partner. So I know inside and out that MailChimp not only puts out a great product for managing email, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, landing pages, postcards, but they also have really great people that work there. It's a really great place to work. And we've even had some of these people on the show if you want to go and search and find them. So whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out today at MailChimp.com. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Richard Bentham, a 2D and 3D exhibit designer for the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Richard Bentham. I'm a full-time 2D and 3D exhibit designer at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, and I'm a part-time grad student studying interior design, currently living in Washington, D.C. Nice, nice. Now, usually I will ask guests to walk me through, you know, like what's a typical day like where you work? But I would be remiss right now if I didn't mention that we are recording this during a time when you're currently furloughed because of the recent government shutdown. And I don't want to get too political here about parties or affiliations or anything like that. But how are you feeling? I'm sad, of course, mostly because as a public institution, we're here for the people. And I think about kids who have planned and and families who have planned their time to come Washington, D.C., and they aren't able to come to all the museums that we have to offer when it's their taxpayer dollars. Of course, the Smithsonian is bipartisan and we don't choose sides. So it's just sad in general. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading the news and I've been watching the news and seeing how it's I mean, it's not just affecting museums. It's like. The National Mall and parks and things like that are oh yeah it's a bad look for the country overall yeah the whole Washington D.C. area is built on those things I mean those attractions are all shut down you know we have some museums who are non-government associated but for the most part there's not a lot to do in D.C. when it comes to 
what DC is known for. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully by the time this airs, this will have cleared up. I know we're recording this kind of earlier in January right now, but by the time this airs, fingers crossed, knock on wood, <laughs> uh, things will, will have cleared up. Now, I think that, you know, most folks that are listening to this, they've been to a museum at some point. They've seen exhibits and such. What exactly is exhibit design? I've thought about this a lot, and I think I've sunned it down to exhibition design is the three-dimensional translation or manifestation of a narrative story, idea, concept, question, or memory. And as exhibit designer, we create transformative experience that try to educate, awe, inspire, and essentially engage visitors. I like that definition. So it's taking that idea and turning it into a tangible experience. Correct. One that you can experience through all the senses, which is, I think, pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, when we met back in July, like in late July, some members of the Revision Path audience, as well as some past guests, we all were went to D.C. We went to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But then we also went to the National Museum of the American Indian, which is where you were. Can you talk a little bit about the museum for those that might not be familiar? The National Museum of American Indian Museum, which I've only been there for a year. So I feel like I am still learning so much because our education system does not. It's usually only one day for most people. Um, but we are here to support the American Indian people or Native Americans in any way possible to bring awareness and highlight that they do exist. They are here. And also to take away any misnomers that people might have in America or all over the world. And we have a lot of work to do. I am African American and I try to stay in my lane (laughs) when it comes to talking about other groups, but I'm seeking every day to learn more and what I can do in my work too for Native Americans as a whole. And we'll put a link in the show notes so people can kind of check out the museum. It's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous building. And even, you know, just outside, of course, but inside, seeing all the different exhibits and everything, it was really something powerful. I think the one that really stuck out to me was, uh, you probably know which one I'm talking about, the one that's... Americans. Was that the one that had all the different advertising signs, like the different ads and things? Yeah. Americans just opened recently. Um, It's an incredible exhibition that essentially poses the question, like, Native American iconography is all around us. And ask, like, why is that? And getting people to take another look. And, like, this is so ingrained into our culture. And we don't even, like, think about it. And like, why is that? And then it goes into taking stories that people are familiar with, like Thanksgiving, going into Pocahontas. Those are just like some of the stories that we go into detail and try to break down any misnomers and tell the honest truth and do what really well exhibitions and thought out exhibitions do, which is start a conversation. Yeah, when you mentioned earlier about how exhibits kind of involve all of the senses, I remember going, and aside from just the huge scale of seeing all of the different advertisements where you see American Indians, but then going into the little sections where you have a little movie that's playing, or you have a uh, like an interactive diagram of sorts where you turn a crank, 
and you're able to see how things move. I mean, all of that really sort of puts you right in the middle of what that topic is about in a very tangible and real way. Yeah, all of us are different types of learners. And within an exhibition, we want to make sure that, like you said, talking about the senses, there's something for tactile learners. There's something for visual learners. There's something for people who liked reading a lot of text. There's something for visual and audio learners. You know, just thinking about all the type of learners you can think about, we really try to like add a little piece everywhere so we're serving and hitting that message over and over when it comes to our visitors. Now, do you have an exhibit that you've designed that's currently in the museum? Not currently, okay. <laughs> unfortunately. Can you talk about some exhibits you have designed? Yeah. So I used to work at the, the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. I was there for about six years. One of the exhibitions I did there that I really loved, and in the show notes you'll see you know, my portfolio, you'll be able to take a look at this one. And it was called EVA 50 Years of Being Outside of the Spacecraft. And within that exhibition, it was um, essentially like a, a photography exhibition where you walked through and it took you through the history of us being outside of the spacecraft. You know, the Russians basically sort of beat us to it, or well, they did. And then we did it really shortly afterwards. And then it takes you out throughout the whole history up to like going on the moon and everything like that. Within that exhibition, you know, I had like a really interesting case that had spacesuit gloves that went in a spiral and that actually like spun around on a turntable really slowly. I mean, it basically showed you the inner layer of a glove and the outer layer of the glove. And there's many layers that are built up and each layer is there for a different reason. And then we had an uh, interactive where you're able to put in a, a short link into your phone and actually click on each of the gloves and get more inf information about it. We had oversized images. We had some sounds in, in that exhibition. And that was my probably my first like large show. It was about a little over 4,000 square feet. And it was up for, I think, about a year or two. Wow, that sounds really impressive. Yeah, it was pretty like impressive, especially coming from being in school and doing graphic design. I never really thought necessarily that I would be doing exhibits and dealing with space in general, which I mm -hmm. find interesting from the spatial aspect of three-dimensional and also, <laughs> of course, <laughs> actual space. Right, right. <laughs> the sky. Let's talk about your, your background. You went to uh, the Art Institute of Washington, so you studied uh, graphic design there. While you were there in school, what was your time like there? At the Art Institute, the nice thing, I was coming in with a background in learning all of the main programs, all the Adobe programs, basically, because in high school, I took about four years of what they call computer graphics class. So that I, I had the basics down. So I was able to come into school just worrying about solving design problems. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very helpful in general for asking different questions. My fellow, you know, uh, what is it called? Yeah, classmates? the other students in the classroom. Yeah, classmates. <laughs> so like while I was like there, that was around the time when we had the 
the crash, the housing crash or whatever. And then people couldn't find jobs and everything like that. So I was like focused on like, I'm trying to have a job when I graduate. Mm -hmm. So my mind was very focused on like, how can I get a job? So I was like really invested in being a part of AIGA and DC and the chapter and networking while being at school. And we had a local a, a school chapter and being a part of that. And then also doing internships because every job that I looked up was asking for you to have one to two years of experience. And I'm like, how do you get one to two years of experience? And I'm still in school. Yeah. Thankfully, like, you know, my parents were able to like provide for me to not do these internships that where you had to do it for free. And so I was able to do like multiple internships and one of those internships happened to be at the National Aerospace Museum. Oh, nice. So that's how you sort of ended up kind of getting your foot in the door there was through an internship. Yeah. And that internship, they were, I went to the career center and they said, hey, we, this person is looking for someone to work on a very specific project. And it was branding for the branding for the space shuttle discovery final flight over dc uh, atop of a 747 plane because the museum was getting this shuttle and they needed somebody to brand it basically the posters the things that were going to be on the stage like all the works of of any any good branding project and i'm just an intern i'm like shocked they even gave me that project (laughs) so they just like just do this poster and once i did the poster they were like oh well you're just going to do everything. And thankfully, after that project, they were like, uh, we have a position here. You know, would you like it? And I'm still not finished school, which just, again, blows my mind. So I started there part time. And after I graduated, I had a full time job. I feel like getting your foot in the door in that sort of way is really good. Uh, and it's good that AIGA was able to really help out with that, too. Yeah, they're amazing. Now, you've talked about the exhibits that you've done. I'm curious to kind of know what your creative process is when it comes to designing an exhibit. Because as you've said, it's a sensory experience. It's not just a graphic or it's not just building a diagram or or a model or something like that. How do you approach building exhibit? Like, how do you bring all of that together? Are there certain tools that you use or anything like that? Yeah. So... I can answer this question in two different ways, but I'm going to try this way first. Yeah, so I use 3D software, Vectorworks, and I also use like the Adobe products. That's basically as far as like my tools. But essentially, like bringing an exhibition together, you know, it takes a lot of specialized people, curators, fabricators, contracting officers, project managers, loan officers, registers, mount makers. I mean, the list literally goes on forever. I mean, I couldn't do it without these amazing people who are specializing in their respective fields. When the exhibition design or exhibition comes to me, it usually comes from, you know, the higher ups and they're like, okay, this is the idea that was approved by usually each, at least at the Smithsonian, we have like a review team that can like takes in ideas for exhibitions and they look at schedule, budget, space, and they approve it or they don't. And once it gets approved, they bring the team together. And they said, okay, Richard, you're going to be the exhibition designer. And then for the other professions that I mentioned, they'll bring all those people together. And usually we'll have a core team. We'll all meet. We'll figure out who's writing the script. And that script essentially has all the objects that are going to be in the show it has what all the labels are going to say, but not always. Sometimes it's just like 
this is the concept. We need to figure everything out. And from that point of view, you know, I go and do some research, figure out like what this topic is about, what things it could add. Has any other museums done exhibitions of this topic or concept or whatever? Bring all that together because at the end of the day, it makes no sense reinventing the wheel if another museum has done something pretty amazing when it comes to certain things. And then also communicating with the curator to make sure that I'm fully understanding certain things. And it's a really collaborative effort. So I'll have an idea, I'll present it to the team. The team might say, oh, that's great. Like, let's incorporate that. Or they might say, like, no, that doesn't make sense. Because these exhibitions are such a grand scale and they can take, they can go on for one, two, maybe five years of planning before the exhibition like even opens, there's just like no way I could do it all on my own. Because there's so many different pieces, I have to understand how each of those, what those specialized jobs are and what they do and how they function. Because essentially, I'm at the center communicating it along with the project manager and the curator or design developer and usually it's the three of us trying to communicate with everybody and me communicating with the actual fabricators who are are going to be putting things together how things are going to work so there's a lot of email traffic and communication that has to be done that is like not even included into design and then sometimes you know we might contract certain pieces out like I might not be that knowledgeable about lighting design. So we might contract a lighting designer. Then I have to work with them and tell them like, hey, this is the team's vision. I'm the only one who understands how to communicate with him directly. So because I know enough about it or more than anybody else on the team, then we'll be going back and forth. And I'm like, I want it to be dramatic. And I want it to be like spotlit really closely. And I want it to sparkle. And I want the background to be black. And that's like in my head. And he or she can figure out how to actually make that possible, get that into the design. And then we can figure out who's going to actually build it. Sometimes, you know, some museums and my museum included have in-house teams. That's always lovely because it's it's always easier working with an in-house crew versus contractors. And sometimes we do have to work with contractors, which is fine. We make it work. But it, it can get really complicated. And every single exhibition that I work on, there's always like completely new challenges that I'm like, okay, never done this before, but then roll up my sleeves and get it done. So what has been kind of the most challenging exhibit that you had to put together? I think it was, I did a Leonardo da Vinci Codex exhibition, which it was one of Leonardo da Vinci's Codex books. And it was a very simple, or you would think it was a very simple show where it was a book that was on display. And for my, if I remember correctly, the book is only on display every 10 years. And this was at the Air and Space Museum. And we were, we had it. And it was a case, essentially, it was just a book. That was the only thing being on display. And then we had some interactives. We had some signage. And it was really complicated because of this is a very delicate book. It's very old. So it was sent to us within a case. Mm -hmm. And then we put it within another case. And then finally, that case within another case. (laughs) And we had to send all of the, we had to put, data readers within side of the case that measured temperature and humidity outside of case 
as well in inside of the interior first case, that first layer. And we had to send that information back overseas to the museum that we borrowed it from. And it, it, that got really complicated because, you know, it's going through the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum is going through a major renovation to fin- fix this HVAC system mm-hmm. and bring it up to code and all that stuff. But at the time, the air handling system wasn't the best and we had multiple issues. So the construction documents for it were very specific on like what needed to be done in order to protect the object. We put it on display, everything's okay. And then I come back <laughs> from vacation after the exhibition is closed. And then there's a big like vacuum next to it because of the, the humidity levels started to drop or the air wasn't correct. So we had to figure out how to put it in place to still look nice, but not be completely in the way. It, it was just like a whole bunch of back and forth and email traffic and it was difficult to deal with, but I mean, it's a gorgeous object. You know, I think we had plenty of lines and plenty of people come in to see it, but for just a small one object, you know, I didn't think it would be as much work as it actually like was, mm-hmm. but it got done. Okay. So I have a question here. This comes from uh, one of our audience members, as well as a guest who's been on the show, Dewan Hall. And he says that on his design bucket list, he wants to do an exhibition design for a museum. How would a designer find out about or connect with a museum to possibly do like what you're doing, like to do an exhibit design? I think the easiest way to do that and to start off is probably with of a tiny museum or a small museum. Small museums, usually the exhibition designer, if they even have one, is doing a lot of the when I talked about those specialized people within our museum or our like museums of our like size are usually just one person. (laughs) If you reach out to a very tiny museum and say, Hey, I just want to get my foot in the door. I just want to like help with an exhibition or like design an exhibition for you guys then I feel like you could probably be pretty successful in like reaching out to them and like getting a project at some point Uh or even like trying to talk to somebody at that museum or see if you can use your network to get into it. And then from there you have something for your portfolio that you can say like, Hey, I've done an exhibition design before at a museum and then build it from there. I think is is probably the best way to go because a lot of the larger institutions, they don't want to just go with anyone who doesn't necessarily have a certain level of experience. Yeah. But I think it's definitely possible and it helps when you have some type of wayfinding experience. It helps if you have some kind of like architectural interior design, you know, some type of 3D like background that helps a lot. And yeah, essentially you want to build your portfolio and and probably start as small as possible and and go from there. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see how you'd want to go ahead and like get your feet wet somewhere really with just kind of testing out the waters, seeing if it's something that you even would be interested in. Because like you said, if it's a small museum and they don't even have an exhibition designer, I would imagine they probably wouldn't have all those other team members that you're speaking about when you say you're putting together someone you've got, 
people that are doing the mounts and all this sort of stuff. Like that's a big team to be able to put together a grand scale exhibit like that. Right. That's why I said like a smaller exhibition, yeah, a smaller museum would definitely probably be open to that. And there's, there's, I mean, if you Google museums, there's like a museum seemingly in every town I go to, even the, the smallest like cities or whatever that I've been to. I'm like, oh, you actually have like a small art museum yeah. or a small history museum that's just like local. Just you would be surprised by just Googling a city how much museums are actually out there. I'm not going to lie. I really didn't like museums growing up. It was not my thing. I grew up in a small southern town and I felt like the town itself was a museum just in terms hmm. of it being old. And I mean, I, I'm from Selma, right. Alabama. So in terms oh, okay. of its its place in history, it's like you're kind of living in a museum and they have a civil rights museum there. It's okay. It just kind of seemed like, why do we keep rehashing the past? So I, I didn't really used to be a fan of, I guess, more, I don't want to say historic museums, because I guess all museums are historic by, by some standard, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like most are. I mean, there's definitely ones that don't really have, they're like, DC has a place, which I don't know if some people would, would argue it's not a museum, but Art Tech House in DC, which is kind of like dedicated towards 3D experiences, basically like projection mapping onto like walls and creating like some kind of visceral, almost like Instagram-y experience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're, I mean, I totally agree with you. Like a lot of the smaller museums sometimes can feel like they're like in the past in a lot of ways. And I feel like a lot of that do, is due to them not just not having enough money and to just like, look, we'll hire or like find anybody who we can to do this exhibition. Or they have amazing people, but they're just overburdened. And they don't have enough money to actually do the exhibition well or like completely thought out, which is, you know, a plug for museums. You know, they <laughs> majority of them need money and it's great to donate to them. <laughs> yeah, I know we have a few. Well, we have several museums here in Atlanta. We have a design museum. We've got art museums, et cetera. And I think it wasn't until I came to Atlanta and was able to see different types of museums that right. I started to kind of appreciate what they were about because back home in Selma, there's it's pretty much just like history museums and the history yeah. of the city is everywhere you go. So it's like, you're kind of like in stuck in groundhog's day in a way, like everywhere you yeah. turn, it's like the same sort of thing. But it wasn't until I came here and was able to see, you know, art and different exhibits and stuff like right actually right now. And hopefully I'll be able to go see it. We have a Yayoi Kusama exhibit which tickets oh, are nice. like impossible to get. Hopefully yes. if someone is listening and can float me one, I'd really <laughs> appreciate that. I'd like to see it before it leaves, but I don't know if that's going to be possible. But Did you see it here in D.C.? We had it at the, the Hirshhorn Museum. No, was it there when I was there uh, back in July? No, unfortunately. Oh, okay. It was probably there like a couple months before, but it, it was definitely there. And we have, they probably have a, like one or two pieces, but it isn't the full exhibition, which you must see. I yeah. got to see it, and it was like it was just like wonderful. I've seen like some pictures, and I've seen definitely on Instagram. I've seen people, you know, take pictures for the gram. I guess that there's one thing that I see is like, and we'll get into this, but there's one thing I see <laughs> people utilizing museums for 
in a modern sense, it's like backdrops for selfies. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which I have a love-hate relationship with. Because I'm like, are, are you looking at the, you know, what's going on? Are you looking at objects? Or right. did you just come here literally to get another hashtag? I mean, it's great. It's like, I'm not going to like complain because it's bringing people through the door. And I really don't care what they're coming in for once they're coming through the door. Mm-hmm. And I mean, museums now have become a part of the national conversation, I think, over the past few years. I mean, one, we're talking about social media. But then also a few years ago when the National Museum of African-American History and Culture opened, that was a huge deal. Because I think, wasn't that the newest Smithsonian Museum to open, that one? Yeah, it's the newest you know, Smithsonian Museum to open. It's the newest on the mall. Just backtracking here a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think museums for like early museums were made for the elite, the educated, the top people who have the most money or whatever to entertain themselves. But I I think today, like the African-American history and culture, I think what they're moving towards or or, or doing right now is they can be agents of change and development. Mm -hmm. You know, they can mirror events in society and become instruments of progress by, you know, calling attention to specific actions or events. You know, they could be a part of the bigger community they serve and reach out to pretty much every group in society. And I would say even now, you know, as you know, I talked about before with how museums are being part of of the conversation now. Of course, within the past few years there's been talk about removing these Confederate monuments, statues, etc., and putting them in museums, you know, like not saying destroying them, but just taking right. them and putting them in a place where they could be appreciated in terms of a proper historical context. And we're even seeing like in in France, for example, Emmanuel Macron is saying that there are going to be artifacts and acquisitions from that are in the Louvre that are going to be going back to their home countries in West Africa. So it's like yeah. museums are, are in the – they're old and historic, but they're also modern because they're part of how we document and, and really kind of preserve culture as a whole. Right. I mean, our museum, the American Indian Museum, deals with that a lot, uh, which call re patriation where mm-hmm. you know we've been given objects back to their communities they can essentially like fill out some paperwork and, and get their objects back in their community if they want them because of how they were originally acquired so it's, it goes into the same thing that you're talking about they're dealing with their own history and past and saying like hey we realize that this was wrong and we're going to send it back and sometimes from the places that they come from, they say like, you know what? It actually makes more sense for it to stay in the museum. Like maybe we want to change how it's contextualized and maybe say something differently about it or add a certain contextual element to it. And I think that's like amazing and awesome. And I'm, I'm love that I'm seeing that change and museums are trying to be more thoughtful in that. Yeah. Where do you see exhibit design going in the future? I like think of myself a lot of a futurist, so I, I, I like think about the past very little, and I'm always thinking about like, okay, what's next? Like, okay. you know, what things can we we do, and what does that look like? I, I do think about augmented reality a lot, and how a lot of the difficulties I have is I will just like the content expert for exhibition, 
you know, they would give me pages upon pages, way too much that can actually go onto the walls of exhibition that I'm like, oh, this is so rich. I wish I could put everything up there. But you're seeing, you know, this movement right now of customized experiences where you think of the simplest thing, like going up to those new Coke machines that have like a million options. Mm-hmm where you're able to come to and like, I could pick my favorite drink before you only have like maybe six, seven, eight options. So same thing in the museum, using augmented reality. I'm hoping that one day like wearables get sexy enough that they just look like glasses and people bring in their only own devices and I'm able to apply more content and within the exhibition Mm -hmm. through the glasses so as a person is moving through the exhibit let's say let's think about at a simplest form or or art museum and they look at the object and usually you have the label who it's coming from a specific voice to contextually fit in with a specific topic and the things around it and coming from the person at the top where a lot of times like you can go online and find so much more information. So if you're a kid and you're studying something very specific, you could say, well, I want to know about this, about this object. How much does it weigh? And not all exhibitions have that information. There's how much pounds this is. And if we're able to insert that information into some kind of like database that has it, then that information can can come up onto you know, their glasses or whatever device that they're carrying with them, or, or if it's maybe it's their phone, mm-hmm. that just adds more content and enriches the experience that the person is having because it's customized to what they're looking for and what they want. Now, we're talking about like in a digital world exhibition growing by like five, six, seven, you know, maybe 10 times <laughs> the size than it actually is, which is probably a little crazy. And I think we're like, we're maybe like 20 years from this or more. You might have like different thoughts. <laughs> but I, I think it it can be really interesting thinking about how people move through space and the information that's provided to them or the information that's taken away sometimes and not overbearing people. But I, I feel like it has a lot of possibilities. Actually, two things came to mind as you mentioned that the first thing when you you know talk about augmented reality and these devices, it's just kind of the relationship that museums have with technology. You know, earlier I spoke about how people look at at museums as like just backgrounds for selfies, and certainly I've been seeing a trend with museums sort of banning selfie sticks. Or I think I think may have been at the Louvre, might have been at other museums I've seen where they ban selfie sticks because it sort of I guess impedes the whole museum experience. So as museums start to hopefully adopt technology in a more holistic way. They can look at other ways to include the viewer as part of the experience, as opposed to it being such kind of a passive experience. Cause the other thing I thought about was tempo museums mm-hmm. tend to be a slow experience. You don't really right. breeze through a museum in like 10 minutes. It's right. because of the way things are structured. There's multiple floors, mm-hmm. there's ample space, it invites you to take your time. And Mm -hmm. in this world, everything is fast, fast, go, 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 go. You know what I mean? And museums kind of tend to be this place where, and maybe this is just because of its historical function. It sort of functions like a time capsule where it feels like there's a different sense of time 
as you're in a museum, I would like to see what a fast museum would be like. Hmm. Like, what is a museum that you could... Well, I'm saying that, I guess, when I think about not just tempo, but also size, because we have a design museum here in Atlanta, and it's fairly small, and you can get through it in, like, 20 minutes. You can pop in Hmm. and out on, like, your lunch break. It's pretty... But it's not a big museum. That's the thing. And, like, right across the street from it is the High Museum, which is four levels, multiple exhibits, it is an afternoon experience. It is not something that you can just go in and out on your lunch break. So I think about that with museums as having like different types of experiences because the interactivity certainly invites you to spend more time with the interactivity of exhibits, invites you to spend more time with them. But because of how museums are kind of this slow experience, I'd like to see more, more fast museums. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that weird? Is that weird that I just got wrote that up about like a fast museum? You know, I like pull back a little bit because I'm like very large museums. I feel like can do one exhibition that's like really fast. I I would like a large museum with like multiple exhibitions, just the whole thing being fast, I think would be like a disservice, you know, in some ways to larger museums. But for smaller museums, I feel like, yeah, that's if – if you're like your mission and your vision and your goals align with like that fast pace, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think that makes sense. And I don't know if that like rings any like any like true to you, but like you know when I think about technology, yeah, I, I'm always careful with museums because again, museums tend not to have a lot of money, <laughs> and so usually I'm like yeah, stick with the tried and true technology out there that you can sustain for a long period of time because it's just not it is not a good look if you walk through an exhibition and the interactives are down you have blank screens some of the creating some of those like digital experiences can be like very expensive as i'm sure you know with like the massive like cms's or content management systems in the background and a lot of time and effort can go into those type of things so a lot of times I, I see a lot of people complaining, well, you know, there's not enough technology with the next media. We need more. And I'm like, well, usually, like, I, I think it should probably be the last stop. We should try things on a small scale that are super advanced, mm-hmm. that aren't super costly, because a lot of funding is coming. It's just a little bit of money. And even some of, like, the bigger exhibitions, like, sometimes can be, like, five, six seven, eight million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money. But once you start building it and you realize how much things cost, it turns out like, oh, this is actually not a lot of money for a huge footprint. I think even like you said, with different wearables and technology, like what what would a VR museum look like? What would a Snapchat museum look like? And these are things that probably that amount of money could make happen just because of how quick it is to kind of put technology together. If we think about museums less as these physical spaces, these edifices that we we go to and visit, but more so the experience itself. Like, I don't know. I feel there's a lot of possibilities for museums. And I think one of the things to think about in the future is just what what does the concept of a museum look like as we think about technology and design? Is it still this white marble building somewhere or is it something different? Yeah, I try to convince museums all the time. I'm like, especially really large ones. I'm like, look, just take one of your spaces and <laughs> do something 
it ridiculously crazy, something that yeah. you ha- you don't do anywhere else in a museum. Because look, you have all the space. Mm-hmm. You have the notoriety. You have the funders you can go after. And what if you were to like throw everything out and do something completely different? What could you do? And I, I think larger museums have the opportunity to do that. It's a little bit harder for the smaller museums, but yeah. I, like, I haven't seen a museum necessarily take that approach mm. where they're like we're just going to do something that just makes no sense <laughs> for us to be doing and i wish they would like keep that space for just those changing things yeah. i've seen it happen outside of larger museums like the architect house that i was talking about in dc where you know they're like you know what we're just going to do this crazy projection mapping and that's just what we're going to be about and see what's done but what does it look like for the Met to do something like that? You see the video with like Beyonce and Jay-Z in, in the Louvre, which I thought like was amazing. Good for them. And their visitation went up like crazy. It was some, something completely different that you wouldn't think would be associated with your museum. And kudos to them for even allowing them to use that space for that music video. Yeah, because certainly I think what it does, at least what I saw once the video came out, like I saw this unfolding on Twitter now is people looking at and examining art within the context of pop culture, within the context of historical access. And those are conversations, like you said, museums, that's what they're there for, to have those right. conversations, to, or at least to begin those, those conversations. For me and for like other people who don't find a classroom setting, you know, necessarily the most natural way to learn. I think it can be amazing for just that, starting new conversations, getting things, ideas just sparked in people's heads, especially younger people, to think about ideas that we haven't even thought about yet. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of want to, you know, switch gears here a little bit. Like I said, we're doing this interview at the beginning of the year. It's 2019. What do you want to accomplish for this year? Wow, that's that's something I haven't even really thought about. I usually like mesh into my years. <laughs> like I don't even like <laughs> worry about like I'm like I'm just gonna keep forward doing the same thing. You know, I want to um which this is gonna happen anyway. Like I'm gonna be graduating with my master's degree this coming year, which I'm like super excited about. I'm trying to figure out like what's next necessarily next after that because i'm gonna have this all this freed up time you know working full-time and doing school part-time is like insane within Mm -hmm. itself especially it like in the design field but once i'm finished with that like which is probably the next year after i look forward to being more of a mentor aiga has functions for that i look forward for backtracking for this year i look forward to writing my thesis centered around augmented reality and what that means and looks like inside of a museum space. So I'm going to be starting my research and trying to figure out the history of augmented reality as it relates to museum and design and see where that gets me. So I'm looking forward to actually apply that to what I do and we'll see what that, where that takes me. Now your, your master's degree, that's going to be an interior design, right? Right. How does that, and this might be a a simple question, but how does that help you as an exhibit designer? Right before I decided to actually start the degree, 
and I just had my bachelor's degree and my experience in graphic design and like a little bit of doing a couple exhibitions that were 3D and learning a lot there, I I realized I did not understand 3D space as well as I should. So I think interior design has helped me understand how spaces fit together, how people actually move through and experience space in general. And I think that's helped a lot when I think about as a person is coming through an exhibition, what they're looking at first, what they're looking at second, what grabs people's eyes, how they locate themselves when they step into a room, what deters them, what confuses them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all been helpful in moving forward with like creating my like exhibitions you know, now and moving forward. So it's it's been an interesting journey coming from a 2D world and being thrown into a 3D world, which I I think initially thought like, oh, well, it's not, it's all design. It's all the same. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can do anything. But I was definitely um, shown that that's not true. And it's, it really is a completely different world. Does your graphic design background sort of help you out with interior design with the work that you're doing? I think so. I think it's definitely imperative that like as a, a 3d designer, you have some background in graphics and typography. It's, it's super crucial for information. Of course, like simple things like typesetting and things of such, it works differently on a super massive scale Yeah. to if it was just, in a book or even like on a screen. So like understanding how that works on a 2D side and how that can be translated on a 3D side, you know, because it was like simple things. Like I really didn't understand that like you could have an image that's pixelated like crazy on a billboard and it'd be okay because people are in cars And they're looking at it from such a far distance Mm. that it will come together and look like there's no pixelization. Now, if you were able to get like a a really long ladder or one of those like boom machines and get up there, you would see that it's pixelated. So just understanding that fact made my life easier because I'm not struggling to get a picture that doesn't exist at, you know, a particular size. And I realized the whole gamma of images actually open up for me to actually use that will work for such a grand scale because something's up high. So it doesn't have to be as sharp as if it was like right in front of you. So it's like simple things like that, like understanding those things can be crucial and working in a 3D world. So it's helped a lot in solving those problems and also just white space and understanding that and how that can play into a 3d space that white space still exists in both you know both no worlds. that's true yeah that's true it can be very helpful and you know allow a person to relax their eyes as they're like reading and help with like less confusion within the space so there's a lot of translations and that I think were really helpful. And also I've seen exhibitions where I'm like, you know, the 3D design isn't that good, but because the graphics are so well put together, it actually looks like a nice exhibition. To me, I felt the difference in what you're saying when I went to the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So for those who might not have been, 
when you come in on the ground floor, you have two options. You can either go to the upper floors, like the the second, third, and fourth. And I think they have an exhibit right there on the first floor or something. Like I think it's like the Oprah exhibit or something is was going on. Yeah, at the you time, go down but, one level. Yeah. yeah, but then you also have the option. There's an elevator that will take you all the way down into like the third level basement. And then once you get down there, you sort of walk in these series of ramps and it's supposed to take you through time from like the 1500s up until right. present day or something like that. And to me, those felt like completely disparate experiences. It felt like what was in the basement was super well done. The typography, everything was on point. <laughs> Even the scale of the the items that they used like it guided right. your eye forward. So even if you didn't know necessarily where to walk, you kind of intuitively knew how to get around, which right. can be difficult, especially in a space like that, where there's a lot of people, there's multiple different, like, you know, little islands of displays and things of that nature. And then you go up to like the second, third and fourth floors, and it kind of just felt like storage. Now, granted, right. I think that's also just because that's probably where they have more, different types of exhibits coming in and out. Like, I feel like right. maybe what's in the basement is like permanent. And then what they yeah. have on the upper floors are kind of the things that are more, more transitory, but it did feel like it, it took me out of the experience a bit going from the basement on up. It just felt like they kind of threw some, now some of it was good. I'm not going to lie. Some of it was good. <laughs> All of it wasn't storage. Yeah. The art part definitely felt like storage, but the music and the television parts, I mean, I was like, wow, this is really nice. You see, the screens and they've got the sort of lithograph walls and everything. So I really did kind of bring you into the space in that way, but it felt so wholly different from what I saw below. It didn't feel like it was that cohesive. And I would imagine with a museum that large and that many floors, you don't have the same exhibit designers doing all the exhibits. So maybe it's just a matter of like, just different points of view, different design styles, et cetera. But it did take me out of it. I won't lie. It did take me out of it for a bit. Yeah. And not to defend them, but like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you are you are correct in your thinking. One, yes, they were designed by different designers. I had the perspective that that is okay. And I usually like to see that. Two, you're correct in that basement, like that, the lower history where it like walks you and you can see multiple exhibitions at once on different floors that's like a permanent gallery and then those upper levels yeah those are more temporary changing like shows that can be different one day and this goes back to what i said about larger museums i think they have the opportunity to create different experiences within one museum and you know, I think that's approach that they took. It's just like, okay, this is our main one, and then these are different ones. I mean, they could have took the approach like, I don't know if you've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. A large part of that museum, you just follow a path, and then they do have like one or two temporary shows. But like, for the most part, the majority museum is like a journey. Mm -hmm. And I think people find those really impactful, and they walk out and like, that was amazing, yeah. because it's a very focused approach. I don't think that museum and a lot of really large museums are meant to be experienced like how you experience the African-American history and culture. Yeah. Because it's just so 
much information to take in. That below level should almost, I would almost like tell, I tell people actually all the time is like, just experience that on like one day yeah. and then come back yeah. at the rest of them. Do not experience the whole museum in a whole day. I mean, we did the thing it, in a whole day. <laughs> we did it in a whole day. It was a lot. <laughs> and you know sometimes that's all you have i mean people are flying in from like all over the place and they're like we gotta see the whole thing because yeah, we're yeah. not coming back to dc for a long time and i <laughs> i get it but <laughs> i almost wish it, that wasn't the case but that is the reality yeah like my mom wants to visit and i told her if we do it we can't do it all in one day because it's just i mean one it's just a lot of walking because it's a big building but really yeah. it is like separate it feels like separate experiences. And if you try to do it all in one day, it's hard to kind of process all of that. Right. And imagine if someone told you, like, we want you to design a museum about the whole African-American history and culture experience. You know? That's a <laughs> it lot. It would just be like, so much. it will blow your mind. <laughs> right, right. You're going like, to leave something out. Stop? Something's going to, yeah, something's going to not be represented right or something. That's a lot. There's a lot. And then you learn from your I mean, all museums, you know, they're, they're, I always say they're all in a work in progress. You know, they're learning from their mistakes with the Twitter and social media. People will let you know when you got something wrong real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, there's several expressions I did. I'm like, somehow all 300 of our eyes in a museum got a word wrong. Don't know how that happened. But they'll let us know. And yeah. we try to figure out how to thoughtfully go about changing those things and make things better for for the people we work for, which is the American public and beyond. Who keeps you motivated and inspired to continue the work that you're doing? The list is really long. I always think about, I look at my immediate circle and then I go out from there. I have like old professors, like Jessica Rodriguez, who was a teacher who was like still to this day is super fundamental when I need like feedback. And I look people outside of that, like Diane Kidd, which I think you've had her on the show, who's been super influential and helpful. I look at, you know, I think everyone mentions Eddie. <laughs> I think it was even mentioned in his podcast, mm-hmm. but Eddie over which I think you've had him on podcasts as well. And he's the person who has done some three-dimensional stuff that I, I find really interesting. I look at other exhibitions designers within the Smithsonian and other museums who are really like under the radar people where you don't see any of their stuff anywhere. I've dug through Twitter and other social media just looking for them and asked for coffees for them. And they've been great in just keeping me inspired on certain things. And then also, like simple webs- websites like Pinterest, because there's like museums that I just can't get to that are like amazing across the world that like pop up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I could go to Australia and look at this exhibition, but I can't. Whereas, like, you know, a lot of 2D design is like you can just look at the computer and get the same experience, or you can like buy the book or get whatever design or is something digital that you can look up on your phone or your computer. Whereas exhibition, I can't get to the exhibition. The best I can get is maybe something on Pinterest and I don't even know who necessarily designed it because that's not something necessarily presented. So yeah, I I get my inspiration from pretty much like all over the place and including when I'm on vacation, I take pictures of like the oddest spatial things. I'm the person even if you look at my Instagram, you'll see like pictures of like 
random textures that I'm like, oh, that'd be great to use in an exhibition one day hmm. or random angles of how like wood comes together with concrete to create some kind of like interesting shadow. <laughs> when I, I don't think anybody else would be like interested, but I'm like, wow, whoever did this detail, this construction detail did an amazing job because there's like a quarter inch gap and this is almost impossible to get. And this is like a crazy engineering feat. So yeah, that's pretty much to sum it up where I get all my inspiration from. No, I like that idea of using Instagram as like a like a digital scrapbook or sketchbook of sorts where you keep concepts that you can go back to later. Yeah. Is there any advice that has really stuck with you over the years as you look like look back over your career? <sighs> My short career. <laughs> Try to think any advice. Five that years isn't that short. That's a long time. That's true. <laughs> I, <laughs> the best advice I was given is probably to to give back as much as possible, to share as much as possible, to pull other people up as much as possible, because that has created many opportunities for me. I try to be as, which has been, one, I mean, my faith draws, you know, is drawn a lot from this very question. It's just like, for, like, it makes sense just to give back. And I don't do it to get ahead or and I don't do it for like any applause or praise, but I just do it, give back because it's the right thing to do. Thankfully, that does have benefits that come back to me. But I have had a lot of people like they're like, you're helping me and you don't there's no reason why you should help me. And I'm a lot of times like, honestly, was, there's not a lot of people who are willing to give up their time to support other designers in the field, especially like my field is so small, it's hard to find people. So I tell people like, look, throw anybody, I'm trying to help anybody like work on their resume, like help them like with their designs, whatever we can do to move forward. But I think that's probably one of the the things that mo- the best advice I've probably gotten is just giving back. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? You you're done with grad school. You've got this free time on your hands. What would you like to be doing? It's always a hard question for me because I'm always like, I'm just going day by day. But (laughs) (laughs) just try to figure it out, whatever opportunity comes to me. But I think in the next five years, I could easily see myself still being at the same museum, still doing interesting things, maybe being at a different museum. Like I, I try not to like look at like all my value coming from just my job, but like how my life looks holistically. I look forward to getting more involved and definitely for sure in the design community, you know, in Washington, D.C. and being a part of that in whatever capacity. And I've talked a lot about AIGA, whether it's that, which might get me in more trouble than I want. They're like, you're finished school. You've talked about it in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, with some other community, creative community in DC, because I just find that, again, like working with other people, working with the design community is just something that I love to do. And just like people in general, just like can be so wonderful. Also can be, you know, terrible, but like I try to be optimistic. I'm horribly optimistic and just working in that capacity. So I'd probably see myself definitely um, being more a part of the creative community. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? 
you can find more of my work on Instagram at Richard Ben or on Twitter at Richard Bentham and on Behance as Richard Bentham as well. All right. Sounds good. Well, Richard Bentham, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're doing this right now. For those who are listening, y'all don't know this, but you're doing this right now. <laughs> While you're on vacation, that's commitment. <laughs> but I think it was, it was really good to talk with you just about museums, especially the future of museums. I think now, as we alluded to earlier about kind of the historic time that we're in right now, as we look to the future and so many things being digitized and and made into these virtual experiences. I think it's important for us to document and realize how much design and museums are a part of all of that and how we can take our own sort of active roles in making sure that we shape those experiences and and really make them I think good for other people, but also I think it's good for folks to know that this is something they can do. Again, like people look at museums as like a field trip destination or something, not going into a space and thinking this is something that I can do. So I think just by virtue of you being able to share your experience, you are opening doors for people. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Richard Bentham and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Richard and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries. And it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. If you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook Design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out today at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Andre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, and it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. Of course, you can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Push that.